Can you make sure I'm turned up on the monitor? Thanks. All right, we're looking at Luke chapter 18. And if you need to, can you ask him, like in the back too? All right, Luke chapter 18. I hope everybody's doing well. And uh, we're picking up on our series called Storyline. And uh, I read a story this past week about a young woman. She came to her pastor and uh, she said, you know, I have a besetting sin and I need your help. When I come to church on Sunday, I can't help but think that I'm the prettiest girl at church. And uh, I I need your help. I want to know how you could help me. I don't know how I should think. Well, the pastor said, well, Mary, she said, uh, he said, don't worry about it. In your case, it's not a sin. It's just a horrible mistake. Uh, Yikes. Um, You know, we're looking at a parable today that when Jesus told the parable, it would have come off like Jesus had made a horrible mistake. Um, It's a parable about a Pharisee and a publican. And uh, it's a very interesting story because as Jesus tells it, it's a paradox. It's not what you would think he meant by it. And it seems like it was contradictory to what he was trying to say. But Jesus had a point behind it. As I was thinking about it, you know there's a lot of paradoxes in life. I read an article this past week about uh, the flooding of thousands of square miles in the rainforest of Brazil. And there's an unusual business that was started from it. Uh, Back when they built a hydroelectric dam in Brazil, uh, it actually flooded the plains where the rainforest was at. And there was millions of trees that were, uh, were underneath this lake that had formed when they built that dam. Well, there was this man that was a a pioneer. He was a guy that he was looking for new places to be able to cut trees, and so he came up with an underwater, um, uh, an underwater. Uh, man, I tell you, what am I thinking of? <laughs> it's bad when you can't even. He was. Th- he came up with an underwater uh, saw. Thank you very much. I tell you what, it's bad. I can't remember what he came up with. All right. So uh, that's awesome. So he came up with an underwater saw where they would go under and they would cut these trees. And it actually ended up being a very prosperous business because when these guys, they would put on these, you know, their air packs on the back, they would go underneath the water, they would go underneath and they would cut these trees that were underneath and they didn't have to fear about the trees falling over on them because they would float to the top. And then they would be able to carry it down river to these you know, sawmills. It ended up being a very good business. Now, they, what was funny in the article is they said the one problem that they had when they were cutting trees underneath the water was the pir- piranhas that were underneath there that would bite them every now and then. But if I was to tell you that there was a place on the earth where trees actually fell upwards, you would say, Ryan, that's crazy. But the fact is, is that when I was reading this story, it happens that there is a place that operates underneath a different set of laws. And as I was thinking about that, that's how God's kingdom works. God's kingdom doesn't operate according to the laws and the rules of this world. Jesus' kingdom is very different. God's kingdom operates differently than what people think. And you know, as I was thinking about that, If I was to ask people of our day, how is it that a person's made right with God? You know, you would get a lot of different answers in our day, wouldn't you? There's some people that think that they have to work or they have to be good, they have to be religious, or they have to be moral in order for God to accept them. But the fact is, is that God's kingdom works very differently than the way man thinks. When you come to Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a story about two men that are very opposite from each other. One man was a Pharisee. He was religious. He was a good man. He was moral. Uh, It appeared that he had a good head on his shoulders. But this man, Jesus, in his stories says that he doesn't go to heaven. But then on the other side, you have another man that appears to be immoral. He appears to be a person that's a sinner, has a terrible background, has lots of problems. He has a very, you know, shaded past. But when Jesus tells the story, he actually says that this is the man that ends up going to heaven. 
And so it would have shocked the people that heard Jesus' story. The people would have been asking, how in the world could that be true? That a good man ends up going to heaven, but a bad man can, uh, uh, the good man ends up going to hell, but a, a bad man ends up going to heaven. That doesn't make sense. But Jesus did it to attack the thinking of, of the people during that day. So what I want us to do is I want us to start off by reading here in Luke chapter 18, and uh, we're going to read verses 9 through 14. So if you'll read along in your Bibles with me, I'll read it out loud for us. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And in verse 13, and the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven. But he smote upon his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. In verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalts himself shall be abased. And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning and we pray that as we open up your word that you would open up our eyes. And Lord, that you would speak to us. Lord, help us to see how your kingdom, how it is that people can enter into that kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would speak to hearts today, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing our story, uh, our, our sermon series called Storyline, and Jesus was the master storyteller. Have you ever noticed that when Jesus told a story, he had a way of speaking with an economy of words, meaning that every word that he had, that he said when he would give a parable, it has a, such an impactful meaning to it. Jesus was, uh, he loved to tell stories. As a matter of fact, one third of all of his teaching, he told parables. The word parable actually means to throw alongside of. Jesus would use stories that the people were familiar with in order to teach a spiritual truth that they were unfamiliar with. And so here in this passage, Jesus tells about these two people, one man that appears to be righteous, religious, but yet he's lost, and another man that appears to be a very sinful person and appears that he's very far from God, but Jesus wanted to attack a mindset that they had in their day, and this is the mindset that they had. They thought that the way that they could get to God, the way that God would accept them was based off of living a good and righteous and holy life, that there was a way that they could earn their salvation. Jesus comes along and he tells this parable using two people that were extremes. One person was uh, what you would consider really close to God. He would go to church all the time. He was a person that was heavily involved in the temple and in the synagogue of his day. Then you have this other man that he was sinful and far from God, wanted nothing to do with religion, but seemed like he would, there was no way that he could possibly be made right with God. But that's exactly what Jesus wanted to do to set up the story. He had a point that he wanted to prove. Let's look at the very first thing that Jesus teaches is this, the purpose of the parable. Look at verse 9, the purpose of the parable. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were what? Righteous and despised others. Okay, when Jesus used this word that there were certain people, he's literally meaning that there's anybody, anybody that has this mindset was who he was writing this for. Well, what kind of mindset was it Jesus was talking about? He said anybody that has the mindset that they trust in themselves Literally, that word trust means convince themselves. Anybody that convinces themselves that they're righteous with God, that's the type of people that he was writing to. Jesus is giving us a kingdom parable. He's telling people about how it is that they enter into the kingdom of God. Is that an important concept for us to understand? How is it that a person can be brought in and be part of God's kingdom? 
How can they be saved? How can they get to heaven? How can a person be made right with God? If you were to ask people in our day, how is it that a person is made right with God? You would get a lot of answers. So this topic that we're going to cover this morning is extremely important. How is it that a person can be justified? If you look down in verse 14, that's specifically what he says. He said, one man, notice, just one man went home, what? Justified. This word justified literally means forgiven, declared not guilty. It means to have uh, to be uh, forgiven, to, to have your slate wiped clean, to be acquitted, to have the charges dropped. And so Jesus is bringing up a parable about how is it that you can be made right with God. And folks, in our day and age, there's only two ways that people attempt to do that. There's two ways that people attempt to be made right with God. One is what we call human achievement. And if you got your bulletin, you might even write that down. Uh, and this is specifically going to be the Pharisee in the story. Some people, they try to be right with God by being good, of hoping that their good will outweigh their bad, of trying to perform good works, of going to church, of praying and, and serving and doing all this stuff in order that their hopes of God accepting them. Now, the problem with human achievement is this. The problem is, is that God's standard is perfection. Now, how many of you would be uh, bold enough to say that you're perfect? So uh, th these Pharisees, they were the ones that attempted to live a perfect life in front of other people. Uh, on the outside, they looked great, but the problem with the Pharisees wasn't just necessarily the outside. It was what? The problem of the human heart. The problem is, is that we all have a sin nature inside of us. If you don't believe that, ask your spouse, they'll tell you, right? And so uh, what happens here is this, is that these guys were attempting to do good things, trying to win God's favor on their life. That's the first one, human achievement. Now the second method that people use, or the one that we should use, it's the method of the publican in this story, is divine accomplishment. Meaning that uh, this type of per person recognizes that they can't earn God's favor. They need God to help them. And so what they do is they turn to God and they ask for him to impute his righteousness, to accredit his righteousness to their account. Literally, they're coming to God and asking God, I can't live this life of perfection. I need you to make a sacrifice for my sins. It's a divine accomplishment. And you're like, you might be sitting here, well, Ryan, why is it that we're getting into this? You have to understand the cultural setting of Jesus' day. They were embedded in a religious system that taught them to live like the Pharisees. You're like, well, what do you mean by that? Well, in their day, the Pharisees were the religious leaders. They were the ones that controlled the synagogue. They were the ones that would teach from the pulpits. They were the ones that taught the people how to live. And so as a result, the Pharisees were held in high regard. They were the ones that everybody wanted to be like religiously. And so these people would attempt to fast. They would pray. They would tithe. They would go to the synagogue. Uh, uh, not only that, but the Pharisees actually had taken the Ten Commandments and turned them into 613 rules. Can you imagine that? And they had this weight that they were putting on top of the people, and they were trying to achieve uh, uh, God's acceptance through, through living out a perfect life. And folks, if you tried to find God's acceptance through good works, you know what you find? Heartbreak. It's burdensome. Have you ever been a part of a place where they like to throw rules on top of you? You ever found rules hard to live by? That's what these people were like. So when Jesus came along, he was attacking the mindset that you could be accepted by God through human achievement. I want you to see a verse. Jesus in chapter 5 of Matthew and verse 20, this is what he says. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, what does it say? You shall in no case enter into what? The kingdom of God. 
What was Jesus trying to do when he told him, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? The people would have been thinking, well, who in the world can go to heaven then? These are, the, these are like the spiritual elite. They're the ones that are teaching us the Bible. How in the world could we ever measure up? That's the question that they were facing. Now listen, Jesus wasn't trying to push them further into good works. He wasn't trying to tell them that they needed to uh, be even more spiritual than the Pharisees that were leading them at the time. What was Jesus trying to point them to? What you're trying to accomplish by living like Pharisees, you could never accomplish. You have to put aside trying to earn God's favor through human achievement. He's saying basically, you can't earn it. You have to turn to Jesus Christ. You have to learn that God is the only one that can give you the acceptance that you need by paying for your sins on the cross. Nobody can be perfect. In other words, folks, what I'm trying to say to you is this, that the Pharisees tried to come to God with their human achievement, but folks, when, at one day when everybody stands before God's throne, there will, nobody, there will be nobody that's in heaven that says, look what I did, look what I deserve. There will be absolutely nobody that will, uh, that will be in heaven that will be able to say before God, look what I did, I'm, I deserve this. I should be here. You see, folks, all of us, all of us get into heaven through the same door, and the door is grace. Grace. Folks, what happened in their religious time was this. The people had gotten so, uh, so religious that they began to look down on other people that didn't hold to their same standards. And as a result, the people had become prideful. So what happened was, is Jesus began to attack the spiritual religious elite by showing them, your righteousness is still not good enough. His attempt was to do this, folks, to humble people that are prideful. You know what I've found uh, in churches is that if we're not careful, we can begin to think really well of ourselves and to think that we're doing pretty good. And over time, we shift from the mindset of grace and we begin to shift to a different mindset of human achievement. And folks, be careful. Be careful because that's when religion begins to look down their nose at people around them and they don't recognize that folks Every single one of us come into heaven through the same door. Grace, grace, grace. Humble yourself. You know, I, was, I read a story this week. I thought it was pretty funny. Don Shula was a, a really famous coach. And at the height of his popularity, he recognized he couldn't go anywhere because people would recognize him. Well, him and his family, they went on a vacation to Maine. And while they were there, uh, they went to a movie theater. They wanted to just enjoy a movie as a family. They go in, and when he walks in, people begin to stand up, and they begin to cheer for him and clap for him. He's like, oh, man, everybody recognizes me. He walks in, and he sits down, and he, he, he says something to the guy that was seated next to him. He said, man, I didn't think anybody would recognize me. And the guy said, well, it's nice to meet you. What's your name? And he said, well, I'm Don Shula. He said, I coach the Miami Dolphins. And he said, well, I didn't know who you were. It's good to meet you. And he said, well, well, why is it that everybody stood up and clapped for me? And he said, well, the reason why was that the, the manager of the theater said that if we didn't have two more people come, then they weren't going to show the movie. <laughs> hey, folks. Jesus Christ told this parable in order to humble people that are prideful. And folks, if we're not careful, we'll forget about the grace that we were shown in the cross of Christ. And we'll begin to turn it into a list of rules and regulations and we'll forget that God doesn't accept you based on keeping rules and regulations. He accepts you because of Jesus Christ and his finished work. Now let's look at the second thing. We saw the purpose of the parable. Now look at the people of the parable. Verse 10, two men went into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other one a publican, or you could say tax collector. Okay, now that's not Republican. 
Don't get that wrong. It's publican, okay? Some of you guys are getting excited. Man, there's a Republican in the Bible, folks. No, it's publican, publican. All right, so when Jesus, he's describing a very familiar scene from Jesus' day, okay? People were very familiar with what it was like to go to the temple. Notice it said they went up to the temple. When, when the people would go to the temple, they would ascend these, lo- these high stairs. And when they came into the temple, uh, the people would gather around and there would be a sacrifice that they would offer up for the sins of the people. After that, they would burn some incense that was preparing uh, the, the, the people in order to begin to pray to God. That's what would be followed next. And so these people would have been very familiar. The, the Jewish people, they went to the temple to pray two times a day. They would go once in the morning, once in the afternoon, once at 9 a.m., another one at 3 p.m., Okay, and they would go there in order to worship. And Jesus is, he's telling a story like they would be familiar with seeing when they went to the temple. And he identifies two men in the crowd one man being a Pharisee, and the other man being a publican. Now, I have to set you guys up for this because you have to recognize uh, when you hear this story, you're hearing it through a person, many of you have been saved for a long time. Now, the very first person that he mentions is a Pharisee. Now, in your mind, when you hear that, you want to do what? Boo, right? Okay, like everybody that plays against the Titans, you want to boo against them. All right, now, this Pharisee, they would not have heard Jesus' story and began to boo him. They would have immediately thought, this is the good guy. This is the guy that teaches us the scriptures. You see, they would have cheered for him. Now, the Pharisees, there would have been a few thousand of them at that time, and not only that, they were highly respected. They were highly religious. These were the good guys. He would have been the hero. Now, when they heard the next guy, the publican, you guys know what he would have done, right? The people would have instantly began to to boo this guy. He was the villain of the story. And Jesus is setting them up that way because he knows that, uh, that they had these preconceived notions about who was good and who was bad. And so when he mentions this publican, the publicans were the ones that worked for Rome. These were the guys that had bought the tax franchises from Rome. And they could set the amount of money that they were going to charge. And they would set ex- exorbitant rates of taxes, okay, not unlike today. And so what they would do is then uh, they would tax people and they would give a portion to Rome and they would keep back a portion for themselves. They were looked at it as being the crooked ones. These were the despised ones. These were the ones that were the worst of the worst of sinners. They were the farthest from God. As a matter of fact, the tax collectors weren't even allowed to give testimony in court because Jewish people said that you can't even trust what they say. So Jesus is setting them up and he's telling them, hey, these are the two men that go to the temple and the Pharisee's the good guy and, and the publican, he's the bad guy. Now you have to think about that as we get into this next part. Now let's look at the prayers in the parable. These two men represent two different ways that people come to God. One person comes through human achievement. The other one comes through divine accomplishment. Now look at the very first one. A self-righteous prayer, verses 11 and 12. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even as this publican. I fast twice in the week and I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, folks, if if you study your Bible, you'll recognize when you read the passage, he only references God how many times? One time. It was only in passing. You know how many times he mentions himself? Six different times he mentions himself. And, folks, he's supposed to be going to the temple to do what? When you go to the temple, when you come to church, what are you supposed to do? Worship. And when he came, he didn't really come to worship. It was more of a horizontal thing than it was vertical. Hey, folks, when you come to church, one of the things that we should be doing is what? It's not, it is about fellowshipping with other believers. But listen, it's most of all about connecting vertically with God. Now, this guy, notice uh, his posture. It says that when he came in, he, he stood. He stood 
Literally, that means that he took his place in the temple. You're like, well, what does it mean when he took his place? Uh, Listen, folks, standing in time of prayer was not a bad thing. That was normal. Jewish people would stand up and they would pray. That was typical. But when this guy stood, it's literally, it means he took his place. It means he took his place to be seen. He, inside the temple complex, you would have the outer courts, okay, or the court of Gentiles, then you would have the court of women, and then just inside of that, you would have the inner courts, okay? And so when it says that he took his place, this guy, he was inside the inner courts, and he probably stood as close to the holy place as he could possibly get. You know why? It was the most prominent position when they stood to pray, He wanted when people would look towards the holy place, the place where uh, God's presence resided inside that building, people would look towards him and they would see him while he was praying. He wanted people's attention to be on himself. He wanted to be visible. He wanted to show everybody what it looked like to be religious. He wanted to be seen. And listen, folks, uh, there's nothing wrong with standing in prayer, but Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Let's put that on the screen. He says this, when you pray, you should not be like hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of streets. Why do they do that, Jesus? Why? They do it to be seen Folks, be careful of being like this man. He was promoting himself. And notice his prayer. He, when he prayed, it says specifically this. He prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are. Can you see him praying that? As a matter of fact, it's probably an audible prayer. He said, you're like, really? Like he would literally pray that out loud for other people to hear him? Yes, he would. You know what's funny about that is this week as I was studying, I thought it was really, really funny. Uh, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't wrong for them to pray out loud, but the rabbis used to have to get on to people that prayed because they would outshout each other. They literally would have to tell them, when you come here to pray, don't yell it so that people only hear you. Can you see them getting into that shouting like, the, Lord, I pray, and then, like, then another person's yelling louder than them? Well, this guy, his prayer wasn't directed to God. He references himself six times. His prayer was really about what? Who was most important to him? It was really himself. Notice the comparison. He said, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this publican. Notice that when he compared himself, who did he pick to compare himself with? The worst people he could look at. Like, have you ever done that before? Like, you feel really good about yourself because you, you see this person, like, they run the light. Man, that, what an idiot. They ran the light. I never run that. And you, like, you try to compare yourself to people. Yeah, you guys do that all the time. All right, and so here's the thing is that uh, what happens is, is what do we do? We love to compare ourselves with people that what? That are worse than we are. But the problem is, is that his eyes were on the wrong person. You know, when he was in the temple, it was meant to be a time where they prayed and connected with God. But he was too busy looking at people around him. Hey, folks, if you're not careful when you worship, you can get very man-centered in your worship and forget that you're not supposed to be looking at people around you. It's meant to be a time that you do what? Where you connect with God who's above you. Now notice what else he does. He thinks he has his act together. Notice he he begins to list off his religious resume. Now stay with me for a second. Notice what he says, I fast twice in the week. Now uh, Jewish culture, they only had to fast really one time, all right, in the calendar year. This guy says he does it two times a week. And you know the, the, the Pharisees, they were so smart on the days they chose to fast. You know what days they would do it on? Mondays and Thursdays. You're like, why on those days? Those were the days where they had the market open and they would choose to go on market days so that when they went to the market, people would know that they were fasting. They had this sad look on their face and, and they would throw ashes on them and they're just walking around all, you know, probably hangry, all right? And they're looking and people are looking at them and they're thinking, what's wrong with this person? Well, I've been fasting today to be seen. 
Notice what else he did. It says that, and I give tithes on everything that I possess. He gave 10%, not folks, not on what he made, on everything that he owned. Did you know that they would even, even tithe on the seed that they would throw out onto their field? They would cut, keep back a portion and they would go and give it to the temple in order to do what? So people would know how religious they were. You're like, Ryan, what are you trying to say by, about all of this? Folks, this is a picture of a person that's doing everything possible to be accepted by God based on their own religious and righteous deeds. Folks, how many of you would be willing to say that this person is more religious than you? Right? Would you admit that? This guy, like as far as uh, doing all this stuff, I, I mean, he was doing everything to impress God. But listen, Jesus made a statement in Luke 16, 15. Look at what it says. Luke, it says, you are they which justify yourselves where? Before men. Folks, when we get justified, we don't want to be justified before men. We want to be justified with God. Look at what he said. But God knows your hearts for that which is highly esteemed among men is what? Is abominable to God. Listen, you might stand in front of other people and they might be impressed with you. But listen, when you're before God, God doesn't look at it and he's not impressed. Folks, do you hear what he's saying? Folks, you can literally walk around and be religious and look like you have all your stuff together. And, and people will look at you and think, man, that guy's really a good guy, man. He, he's incredible. But God could be on the flip side, on the reverse side, looking at what's happening and thinking, this is an abomination to me because I see his heart. Folks, when we get to heaven one day and we're standing before the Lord, God's not going to be impressed with us. As a matter of fact, if you take your best day and all the good things that you've ever done, the Bible says in Isaiah 64, verse 6, that, that we are all as an unclean thing and all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Literally meaning this, folks, that, that you're all the best things that you've ever done, it still falls short of God's standard. He's not impressed with you. And you're like, Ryan, that's really depressing. Why would you say that to us? Uh, nothing's good enough? Folks, it's not meant to depress you. Listen, it's meant to empty your heart of every bit of pride that gathers up inside of your heart as if to think that you could do anything in order to please a God that's righteous, that's holy. We could never achieve his acceptance based on what we do. And God, empty our hearts of all the pride that gathers up. You know, I heard a story about a man. He conned his way into the, the Chinese orchestra for the, uh, for the emperor. He pretended to be a flutist and he got on, he made an incredible living. Uh, when they would have their times where they would practice, he would hold the flute up and he would act like he was playing incredibly. Made a great salary, he had a comfortable living. But one day the emperor requested a, a solo from every person that was in the orchestra. And this guy's like, I don't have enough time in order to do this. Well, the day came where it was time for him to play his solo. And he acted like he was sick, but the emperor's doctor noticed he really wasn't sick. The man ended up taking poison and he ended up taking his life. Did you know that from that story in English, we ended up getting a new saying? This is the saying. He refused to face the music. Folks, one day every one of us will have to face the music that none of the things that we think are good, none of the things that we've done, all the great things we think we've accomplished will have to face the music that God does not accept you based on all the good works that you do. It always falls short because it's all what? It's all as filthy rags in his sight, folks. There is absolutely zero reason for us as believers to be prideful about anything. Everything that we have was given to us by God. I have nothing to boast about. And you're like, Ryan, why would you say that to us today? This is so depressing. Folks, I have to say it to you because the good news is coming now. Okay, everything I've said to this point, you guys are like, man, Ryan, I, this is depressing. Stay with me, okay, because this is where it gets incredible. 
You have to do away with your self-righteous pride and come to the point where you have nothing good to offer God. You leave all of that junk behind of trying to earn his favor. You can't earn it, folks. Now you come to the next part. Notice the sinner's prayer, verse 13. What I love about this man's prayer, folks, it's only seven words. Seven words in his prayer. But folks, it was a powerful prayer. It was directed towards God. Notice what he says, verse 13. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven. But he smote his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice he prayed to the right person. He prayed to God. Notice that he, he, he made the right request. He asked for mercy. He noticed that he made the right confession. He said, I'm a sinner. Listen, and when the people would have heard this story, the part of this, this publican, the people would have been thinking, there's no way that this guy is going to get away with that. There's, there's no way. This is the furthest a person could be from God. He, he's like the worst of all sinners. There's no way that God would have a grace on a person like this. God's grace doesn't belong to a person that lives like this. That's the point that Jesus is making. He's pointing to the worst person a Jewish person could ever think of. And folks, Jesus is doing it to make a point. Notice what happens. Notice his position. It says that the publican, he stood afar off. It literally means a great ways away. You remember the Pharisee, he stood up at the front of the inner court. You know what this publican did? He stood as far away from the holy place as he possibly could. Do you know why? It was a sign of humility. He's saying, I don't even deserve to be close to God's presence. I, I shouldn't even be here. He's showing his sense of humility, that he's in the presence of maybe people that were better than him, that were there to worship. But notice also he, his posture. It says that he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. You know when the, the, the Pharisee prayed, he stood, and most likely he took the posture of he turning his eyes towards heaven, that like he could look God in the eyes. But this publican, he had his head turned downwards. Do you know why he would do that? It was a sense of fear, a sense of God's judgment should come down on him because he recognized how sinful he was. And he recognized that he had nothing he could offer him, that he was a sinner, the worst, the worst type, and that he was alienated from God. He was afraid of his judgment. But notice what else, his passion. Notice that he, it says he smote his breast. Did you know that you'll only see that two times in the New Testament? You're like, Ryan, what does that mean? The only other place that you'll see it in the New Testament is at the cross when Jesus was crucified. Afterwards, there was a group of people that began to beat their chest. You're like, Ryan, why would they beat their chest? What did that mean? This is what it meant, folks. When the people felt convicted about something that had happened, you know, they took their fists and they would clench them together and they would begin to pound their heart. You know why they pounded the heart? They were, it was a sign of showing, they were saying, my heart is wicked, it's evil, I deserve to be judged. And so they take their hands and they would begin to beat their heart. You know what this man was saying? I deserve the worst. I deserve his judgment, his punishment. But folks, this is where everything changed. And this is where I, want, I really want to get your attention on this part. I know it's been a lot of heavy teaching, but listen to this part. You want to know what separated these two men? was the very last part of his prayer. Look at what he says. If you have a pen, you might circle the word mercy. His plea was this, God be merciful to me, a sinner. You might write this word out to the side. We could probably spend 15 minutes on one word. It literally means make atonement for me. He literally means apply atonement to me. Or you could say, God be mercy seated to me. You're like, Ryan, I don't even know what you mean by that. It literally means this, appease uh, my sin, uh, satisfy God's demands of, for sin for me. 
He's praying this inside the temple and he's, he's looking at these animals that have been sacrificed and he's looking at these, these animals and he's saying, God, would you, would you allow these to, to cover my sin? Would you have mercy on me? What does he mean by that, folks? He's saying my sin is so big, I can't be good enough to cover what I've done. And folks, that's the way that every single person comes to Jesus Christ is they recognize my sin is so great that I could never do anything to earn his forgiveness. God has to have mercy on me. That's the only way my, my slate can be wiped clean. Folks, every single person in here comes to Christ in the same way. We have to ask God for mercy. We don't ask him to, to, to come and, and accept all the good things that we've done. He understood that human achievement couldn't make him right with God. He needed God's divine accomplishment for God to look down and to forgive him based on a sacrifice of something dying in the place of himself. And folks, that is the way that people are saved. When he would make the statement, God be mercy seated to me. You know, in their day, they used to take an animal and they would slit its throat and they would take the blood and they would go inside of the, the holy place and then the, the high priest would take the blood and he would go into the holy of holies and there, there would be this chest that, that had the Ark of the Covenant inside of it. It had the rod of Aaron. It had all of these things inside of it. And literally, he would take the blood, and, and there was this, this cherubim that sat on top. And it was a gold seat there. And what he would do is he would take the blood, and he would put it on the mercy seat. It would make a covering because the people weren't able to keep the commands that were inside the chest. And literally when he said, God, would you be mercy seated to me? Would, what he's praying for is this, God, would you cover up my sin? Would you make a sacrifice in place of me? And folks, you know what he's saying? God, I have zero pride. I have nothing that I have to offer you. I'm asking for you to do something I can't do myself. And folks, that, that's every single person here today. I can't do it myself. You know, I read an article this week that in Poland, this is several years back, the government came out with a new rule that they weren't allowed to display crosses in public places, whether it be inside of a school or whether it be in a factory or in a workplace. They asked for all of the crucifixes, all of the crosses to be removed. There was a principal at one of the schools that he ordered for the school to remove all the crosses from their walls. And he removed them. Well, the next day, the parents showed up and they began to put crosses back in the place of where he had taken them down. The principal got upset and he had them pull them back down again. And so the next day, two-thirds of all of the students showed up in front of that school and they began to, they staged a sit-in. And they all began to hold these crosses and they showed up in front of the school and they went from that school and they ended up walking to a local church where they were, uh, there were some more students that were gathered there. And I want you to hear the words said by the, one of the priests in Poland. This priest in Poland made this statement in front of all of the news cameras. He made this statement. He said, there is no Poland without a cross. Folks, there is no one righteous without the cross. There is nobody that's forgiven apart from Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And folks, because of that, every single person that's here today should be like the tax collector that comes before God and says, God, I need your mercy. I have nothing to be prideful about, but God, I need you to forgive me on the basis of a sacrifice. Folks, that's what gains our acceptance with God. But I want you to see the very last thing, and we'll be done. The last thing, I want you to see the paradox of the parable. Notice what Jesus says in verse 14. He does something, and I love how Jesus would tell stories. He would flip the script on them, and he would do something at the very end that would bring a punch. It would be his knockout punch that he would bring at the end. Notice that Jesus never just teaches something just to teach it. He brought it up in order to teach them a valuable lesson that they would hopefully remember. Notice what he says here, verse 14. I tell you. Who's talking? 
Jesus. So Jesus is saying, on my authority, I tell you this. A man, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased. And he that humbles himself will be exalted. This is a very powerful word when Jesus said, this man went home justified. Folks, listen, this is, this is where it gets good. It means that it happened in the past with continuing results. The moment that this sinner in the temple began to cry out for God to be mercy seated to him, to apply atonement to him, God immediately heard that prayer. That moment he was declared not guilty. He was declared forgiven, paid in full. It it started at that moment when he cried out to God. God forgave him. Everything in his past, everything he had ever done, God says, you're now totally wiped clean, forgiven, complete, immediately, no waiting. It was instantaneously. His sins were covered. And you're like, well, what's the big deal? Well, the guy that had wasted his life taking advantage of other people, a scoundrel, a crook, a cheat, he came to God and he said, God, would you cover my sins? And from the moment that he cried out to God and he asked for God to accept him on a, on a sinless sacrifice, he had his entire past wiped clean, totally forgiven, brand new start. Folks, the question is, is that, well, how is a person made right with God? Can I tell you today that if you've been trying to earn God's acceptance, You can't earn something that God gives to you freely in Jesus Christ. I can think so many times in my life where I slip back into thinking that I could work and gain God's acceptance some way. God, forgive us for ever thinking that God would accept us based on what we've done as opposed to what his son did. Notice that Jesus his paradoxical statement, he says this, for everyone that exalts himself, what does he mean by that? Everyone that trusts himself to be accepted by God. Everyone that exalts himself, what will he do? They shall be humbled. Literally what he means by that is if you exalt yourself and you think you can be saved on your own good works, guess what? Eventually you're gonna be what? Humbled. You'll be recognized you couldn't do it. But he says if you'll come to God this way, if you'll humble yourself recognizing you have nothing good to offer him, if you'll come in this way and you'll humble yourself, God will exalt you. What does he mean by that? You'll be saved. You'll go to heaven. You see, one person was trying to come based on his human achievement. He labored. He worked for acceptance that he could never earn, and God would eventually humble him. But folks, the tax collector, when he came before God, he came humbled, recognizing he had nothing good to offer God. And he says, God, I have nothing to offer you. But I ask that you would have mercy on me. You see, he humbled himself and he trusted God to do what he couldn't do. He had wasted his life. He had done horrible things. But listen, he came and he asked God to apply atonement to him. And he asked God to forgive him. And would you do what I can't do, and God accepted him based on a sacrifice that eventually, listen, would come through the sinless sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Now, I know that we went through a whole lot of teaching today, but let me just say this. If you're here and you're a believer and you've already trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, Can I just go ahead and put you at ease today? You are fully accepted into the family of God. And you could never lose it. And folks, you could never earn God's favor any more than what you already have freely in Jesus Christ. Get rid of this mindset of thinking that I, I got to come to church and, and I got to tithe and I got to sing this song and, and, and I got to be a part of this and I, and, and I got to find a, a volunteer ministry as if God's going to accept you based on that. He doesn't accept you that way, folks. Either you're in the family and he's already accepted you because he accepts his son, Jesus Christ. You could never earn it. You could never pay back the debt. Folks, that's what makes grace and mercy so wonderful. You can't earn it. He's given it to you. 
Oh, how that would change us when we sing songs. You think we would sing maybe a little bit louder? You think that it would make us a little bit more thankful and grateful? You think it would make you stop looking down your nose at people that also need grace? You know, I heard a story about a scene in heaven where St. Peter, he was manning the desk at the pearly gates, and a man walked up and he rang the bell and he said, Peter said, well, can I help you? The man said, well, I'd like to get into heaven. He said, well, great, we always want more people in heaven. Great, you know. Um, Peter said, in order to get into heaven, you have to earn a 1,000 points. And the guy was like, Okay, well, I've been a pretty good person. I've, I've given money to charities. I, I've been involved in our community. I've, you know, helped the poor people. Peter said, fantastic, that's great, one point. Well, the man was, you know, a little taken back by what he said. And he said, well, I was married to my wife for 45 years. I, I was faithful to her. We, we had five children. We had three boys, two girls. I was a good dad. I tried to provide for them. I put them in the best school I could get them into. And Peter said, fantastic, that's great. You get another point. And the man was getting a little nervous at this point. And he said, well, you don't understand. I've been active in my church. I've been a deacon. Uh, I go to church every Sunday. I give money in the offering plate when it's passed by. I, I, I've been involved in teaching a, a Sunday school class for 20 years. Peter said, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, you're incredible. You get another point. And Peter at this point begins to say, well, that's one, that's two, that's three. You only have 997 more points. And the man at this point, he falls down on his face and in desperation, he says, but for the grace of God, nobody could be here. And Peter looked at him and he said, great answer. For that, you get a thousand points. Folks, listen, the only reason that any one of us in this room, in this auditorium, will ever be in heaven is because we found grace in Jesus Christ. And because I've been given grace, folks, it doesn't end there. Because he showed me grace, I in turn want to show other people grace. Folks, as we close down this message, let me just give you three application points that you can take away. How can I apply this to my life? First of all, are you prideful? The Bible talks about that God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Folks, we need humble Christians today. People that don't look down their nose at other people that also need grace. Second of all is this. Are you trying to earn God's acceptance? Are you tired? Are you, have you grown weary of trying to do stuff for God that you've forgotten you're already accepted because of Jesus Christ? Maybe lastly is this, are you gracious? Do you show grace to other people? Believers ought to be the most gracious people in all the world. I want to ask that we would bow our heads and close our eyes and ask if everybody would stand up wherever it is that you're at. Just stand where it is that you're at. And I want to give us time to be able to respond. Maybe you're here today and Maybe you've never been saved. It wouldn't be odd to have people here today that 